Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Russell A. Berman, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Walter A. Haas Professor in the Humanities at Stanford University. He's also a member of Hoover's Working Group on Islamism and the International Order. The title of his talk is The United States and Europe Facing Russia and Iran, and it was recorded on April 20th, 2015. Uh, what I want to talk today about is, um, is Europe, about U.S.-European relations. My original work was primarily on Germany. I've expanded over the years to think about transatlantic relations, uh, the character of relations between the United States and, and, uh, and uh, Europe, our allies in Europe, our traditional allies in Europe. And this afternoon, I want to look at that in the context of two challenges we're facing currently, uh, Russia and, and Iran. Uh, the background to this, I think it's uh, particularly important for the United States to begin to rebuild the Western alliance. The ties between the United States and Europe have been under strain for, 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 for quite some time now. Uh, they're fundamental. They're of deep cultural, economic, political, traditional roots. Uh, but they need some tending. At the same time, there are challenges going on in Europe. I'm going to look a little bit at internal politics in, in some exemplary European countries. There are numbers of elections coming up and uh, consider some of the prospects. And then I want to look at what the U.S.-Europe connection means facing Russia and its its annexation of Crimea, its uh, invasion of Eastern Europe, Ukraine, which I think we can regard as nothing less than a declaration of war against the West. And then look at Iran uh, and the negotiations that, uh, that have been unfolding. Uh, I prepared these slides last week. Things have transpired in the meantime and will continue to transpire. What's really interesting in that, as you'll see, is the particular role that France, of all countries, has been playing in that, maybe giving um, the um, given the American delegation a little bit more backbone than it might have had otherwise, uh, believe it or not. But that's not where I want to start the story. I want to start the story back in the, um, in the 2008 election campaign. Uh, you may remember that when uh, President, well, then candidate Obama made his campaign stop in Berlin. That's fair. Uh, he was trying to demonstrate his, uh, his, uh, his international credibility, and he received uh, massive warm applause in Berlin, in part because he was perceived as the uh, dynamic politician that he is, in part, though, because he was, of course, the end of the George W. Bush era. George W. Bush was... Um, deeply unpopular in Europe, as you recall, and it was in those years that we saw an upsurge in anti-Americanism in parts of Europe, a topic on which I've written for, for Hoover. When President Obama came into the White House, I think he had enormous personal and political capital to use in uh, Europe in mending those relationships. I fear, though, that he did not use that capital. I fear, though, that he squandered that capital, and sometimes under the um, alibi of a pivot to Asia, evidence of which still uh, has not shown up. Uh, he's, in a sense, turned his back on uh, aspects of the European relationship, as well as turned his, his back on aspects of the Middle East, to which I'll get later. Any case, but 2008, a moment of uh, celebration of an American candidate in Berlin. That's nothing that one should uh, discount, except just this year, You'll recall the uh, Charlie Hebdo terrorist attack in, in Paris and the absence of uh, 
the American president or a high-level American president in this demonstration that took place in the um, in Paris. You see uh, Francois Hollande there linking arms with uh, Angela Merkel, so France and Germany, and a number of other world leaders. The United States did participate, but at a much lower level. The U.S. ambassador to Paris is somewhere in the crowd. This was a bit of a, this was a significant, a significant lapse, I think, in U.S. Uh, attention to the Europeans. The absence of a strong U.S. presence was, was noted, and indeed, eventually, the White House even came around and said that they had made a mistake. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the Europe and uh, about Europe and America and some of the key components in uh, in the um, in the relationship as it's developing now, and especially in European. Uh, attitudes toward the United States. Both Europe and the United States face the, um, face the, the threat of uh, Islamist terrorism, um, but they're responding to it in, uh, in very different ways. Uh, take, a, take a little bit of a look at that. Uh, within Europe, uh, there's, with some exceptions, uh, uh, a set of very slow growth economies that's generating considerable unemployment, especially youth unemployment, and that youth unemployment hits particularly the immigrant communities. Those immigrant communities are largely from North Africa or Turkey or Africa, so Muslim communities. And it's in that context that um, small numbers get radicalized, get recruited by Islamist networks, but you only need small numbers to create uh, enormous havoc. That's the particular nature of, of terrorism. That's the asymmetrical warfare that, that's at stake. And then put that in the context of levels of resentment against the United States and um, lingering anti-Americanism. In my book, I talk um, about the various historical roots of anti-Americanism in Europe. My point is not that all Europeans are anti-American. That would be silly. There's a strong philo-Americanism as well. There are strong friends of the United States in Europe. But nonetheless, within their political cultures, there's a reservoir of, of anti-Americanism that, um, that can be drawn on, that can be drawn on by politicians in certain circumstances to, um, to their um, opportunistic advantage. So. Uh, I believe it was low more than a month or so ago that ISIS engaged in cyber terrorism against one of, of France's major television channels. It took over the website, it took over the Facebook page, it took over other aspects of its, uh, of its social media. Analogous to the Sony hacking that took place here last year, um, taking over a website is uh, is, is not, uh, it's not a violent attack. It doesn't leave corpses in the wake, as was the case in the Charlie Hebdo attack. Nonetheless, it underscored once more to the French how vulnerable they are, so that the French premier, uh, Manuel Valls, uh, has been an outspoken critic of terrorism, a social democrat, uh, so center-left, but nonetheless an outspoken critic of, of, of terrorism. He talks about um, about Islamist terrorism. He's used the term Islamofascism. And I want to underscore that now because uh, that's one of the big divides between the political leadership in uh, some of the key European countries and the political leadership in the United States where there's considerable hesitation to name the problem. 
the Fort Hood massacre is still workplace violence. Um, uh, Islamism, Islamist terrorism is effectively banned from official vocabulary uh, in, um, in, in the United States government. Uh, and here, in a, in a strange way, the, um, there's been a role reversal since the, uh, the, the Bush era. It's almost as if, as if uh, the Europeans are from Mars and the Americans are from Venus. Uh, the, uh, the, the Europeans, at least on a, on, a, on a verbal level, are tougher on terrorism. Angela Merkel, David Cameron have both talked about the collapse of multiculturalism. Uh, Merkel, multiculturalism has been a failure. Multiculturalism is, of course, not terrorism. But these two uh, rhetorical domains overlap. And I could, I could get into that at, at greater length. But terrorism coming out of unemployment and the um, radicalization that is, is nurtured in that context. This is an interesting uh, uh, graph to look at. The, um, the red bars are the, the general unemployment uh, across, across Europe. The blue bar is uh, unemployment uh, under age 25, so youth unemployment. Um, uh, well, you know, Greece, Greece has its problems, but that's there on the far left. 25% uh, unemployment in general, but close to 60% youth unemployment in Greece. 55% um, uh, in Spain. Croatia, just 48%, uh, and so forth. These are, the, these are the cohorts that are susceptible to uh, radical recruitment. These are the cohorts where the terrorists of the future are being are being recruited. They're going being sent to Syria to, to fight with, with ISIS. They're coming home with, uh, with weaponry. It's really a very similar dynamic to what happened in the context of the Balkans wars uh, uh, a decade ago. So this is, how, this is how European political economy intersects with uh, the political question of terrorism and the cultural question of Islamism. What are the consequences? What are the consequences within Europe? What are the consequences uh, um, uh, in the European political discussion, not just in the terrorist extreme, but within the, within the electorate as a, as a whole? I think what we see developing is a kind of um, inchoate anti-Westernism, kind of hostility to the United States coupled with a hostility to the EU. This sounds, may sound strange from this context in, context in the United States where we think US versus EU. But no, within this political culture that is bubbling up in Europe, the United States and the EU count as the West. And that's seen as the source of, um, as, a, as, as, a, as a target of animosity. I want to look at what this means in terms of electoral politics in these four countries, in Greece, Spain, France, and Germany. Um, I want to then also speculate on what the consequences are because ultimately, ultimately it's both the mood in the electorate that's popular, but also who's in power, who's the prime minister, who's the president, who's getting elected. Well, we know who, who got elected in, uh, in, uh, in, in Greece. Uh, this is the public opinion polling up to January 2015. So this is last year's public opinion polling. And the pink line at the top is the rise of Syriza, the radical left party that, that has won. 
uh, it, it outpaced the center-right party, which is the, the blue line below that, and they're both far above all the other parties. So effectively a two-party system with a bunch of smaller parties. Syriza in power is the party that is refusing to renegotiate the Greek debt, but uh, that's a political economic question. Syriza in power is also the Greek leadership that has opened a door to negotiations with Russia. So one, uh, one consideration in the whole prospect of a Greek exit from the European Union, a Greek exit which many feel would be deserved, is that in whose sphere of influence is that Greece going to end up? But for now, let's just note that Syriza and uh, how Syriza rose last year in Greece. Now let's go to the other end of Europe and look at Spain. Uh, this is public opinion polling um, uh, currently looking ahead to the December election. December 2015, there'll be elections in Spain. And you see that purple line that rises abruptly and is nearly at the top competing with the center-right po uh, party, which is the light blue line. And that line that rises uh, abruptly is the Podemos party. Podemos party is the Greek, excuse me, the Spanish corollary to Syriza. This is the far left poised to have a real, real clear shot at the, um, at the government of Spain uh, by, the, uh, by the end of this year. Greece, Spain, now let's go to the middle. We just had elections in France. Uh, these were departmental elections, so local elections. And for those of you who uh, don't follow it, France has a, um, um, a system in which there's a first round and then a second round. And this, the, the map you see are the results of the first round the, uh, by department, by region, so to speak, uh, in terms of which party won the majority. And those dark areas are areas in which the National Front, so Marie Le Pen, the far right, now we're talking about the far left before, now we're talking about the far right. Far right has uh, majoritarian aspirations through, uh, through most of France. Now due to the second round character of voting, they ended up not being in the majority in any in, in any one of the departments, so they have gained seats in the local councils. Polling indicates that Marie Le Pen has a good shot to be one of the, um, one of the, uh, one of the two strong candidates in the next um, presidential election in France as well. She's by no means a shoe-in. The National Front is by no means a shoe-in, but it's significant that one in four in France voted for the National Front. Why does this matter? Because although it's far right, in contrast to Syriza and Podemos, it is also anti-US and also anti-EU. And what's more, to make this even sweeter, it's pro-Russian. Uh, why, why, why this connection to Russia? In part because the National Front is being bankrolled by Russian banks, and in part because the uh, National Front taking an anti-EU stance has been critical of European resistance to the Russian annexations in the Ukraine. Now let's look at Germany. And Germany, I think, is you know, the key country. It's a big economy. It's a stable economy. Um, the, the German question for years is that it's a little too big to rule the continent, but it's a little too small to, uh, to be ignored. 
This is the makeup of the Bundestag, the, the Congress in, in, in Germany right now after the last election. And the, um, the ruling coalition, the very stable ruling coalition, is made up of the Christian Democrats, that's the black bloc, and the, the Social Democrats, the, the, uh, the red bloc, the SPD. This black-red coalition is uh, what they call a grand coalition in Germany, extremely stable. It's centrist. It's probably somewhat center-left, even though Merkel is, uh, is in power, but we could, we could debate that. But there's going to be another election in Germany, 2017. And the concern is that due to the anti-Americanism that is, that is spreading, there were just big demonstrations throughout Germany against the uh, trade partnership, the transatlantic trade partnership this weekend that had an anti-American character. The concern is that as anti-Americanism bubbles up, um, there's a prospect for a very different coalition. And in the German color co code, it's called the red-red-green coalition. That would be the, the greens in the middle there, the, the ecological party, um, the, the social democrats, and the Die Linke, the left party. That's what it's called, the left. It's the heir to the communist party, the party that was in power in the old East Germany and its West German allies. So even right now, it's almost, it's almost a majority. The reason why we don't have that coalition so far is because the SPD and the Greens are reluctant so far to, to get into bed with the former communists. But we can see this whittling away. And it's very, very likely that a red, red, green coalition could come into power in Berlin in 2017 with a very less pro-Atlantic, very less pro um, pro-American position than the one that, uh, that Merkel uh, has, has pursued. Uh, I remind you of the, um, the former uh, Social Democratic Chancellor of, um, of Germany, Gerhard Schröder, who, leaving office, went, uh, moved, moved on, big career move to become the chairman of the board of Gazprom, the Russian energy concern, and his close friends with, um, with uh, Mr. Putin. Um, there's a big potential for this kind of coalition to take over in Germany, which is going to put further strains on, on US-European um, US relations. There's also uh, something that I work on, uh, in addition to the anti-American potential in Germany, a kind of Russophilia, a kind of pull to the, toward Russia in parts of German culture that I'd be happy to talk about. But let's move on, because it's Russia. Now, remember the, uh, the reset, uh, remember how the reset began with the um, peremptory uh, backtracking on the uh, anti-missile uh, defense system in, in Eastern Europe in 2009. This was um, uh, what um, was probably a first step in what's coming to be called maybe the Obama do uh, uh, doctrine. Um, um, peremptory concessions to your enemy without asking for anything in return. Uh, then, uh, during the last election, the hot mic incident, you remember that one? Uh, speaking with um, Medvedev uh, uh, and the mic, uh, the mic um, unbeknownst to the president on, after the election, I'll have more flexibility. Uh, uh, and uh, Medvedev's response, I understand, I'll transfer, 
transmit this information to Vladimir. Uh, so there's a, there's a sense that um, the, the reset was a core piece of the uh, administration's agenda, that it was probably, it was certainly very naive about the character of uh, prospective U.S.-Russian relations. Um, because in the end, the result of the, the reset were uh, tanks in the Ukraine. Uh, the annexation of Crimea seems to have been um, almost normalized in the international community now. Uh, that seems to be being treated as a done deal. We should not, we should not forget what this means. This is, a, this is a violent transformation of international borders uh, in the core uh, in the core European space. Um, anyone who says that there'll never be another big war with tanks, that it's all now cyber warfare or terrorist warfare, should, should just look at uh, what took place in Crimea and in the Ukraine. And this is ongoing. Despite the Minsk agreement, the, the violence has just seen an upsurge in, in the eastern Ukraine. Uh, what's more, there have been uh, demonstrations of Russian military power throughout um, or on the borders of NATO airspace and in, um, and in European waters. Uh, uh, Russian, Russian naval vehicles in the, um, in the British Channel and uh, around, around Scandinavia. So Russia is clearly sending signals that it's projecting its military might. Um, uh, it's it's not a return to the Cold War. That would mean many different things, including a, a broad global and ideological struggle. But it certainly is an um, exacerbation of uh, tensions between the West and, and Russia. Uh, part of, this, um, part, part of the, this, uh, this picture of contemporary Russia, part of the Putin era, is, of course, the suppression of domestic uh, political debate and dissidents. These are uh, protesters uh, responding to the death of the, to the assassination of um, uh, liberal politician Boris Nemtsov um, a few weeks ago. In, uh, he was shot uh, just, just outside the Kremlin. Let's pause for a moment. Um, why is Russia potentially appealing to the European left and right? Why is Russia potentially appealing, especially to the Western European left and right? This is, this, this is not, we're not talking about those countries that lived under communist rule. Uh, they're not eager to return there, especially, um, especially Poland is not. But in, in, in Germany, in France, in Western Europe, what's at stake? Well, again, there's a cultural anti-Americanism that pervades uh, uh, large parts of the culture. Uh, this has historical roots going back, I think, to the 18th century, but, in, but, but, but embellished by various aspects of the European country's experience uh, in the 19th and 20th century. In addition to this anti-Americanism, there's a um, kind of epidemic uh, anti-capitalism. Uh, uh, frankly, I can hear this on campus as well. Neoliberalism is regarded as the source of all evil. Uh, and part of neoliberalism is globalization. And part of globalization, so it is seen, uh, is an American imperialist agenda. And in European, 
political discourse, all of this comes together into a inchoate anti-Westernism that I referred to before. I also think that in parts of the European public sphere, uh, there's a um, there's in fact a nostalgia for communism. Uh, not, not a nostalgia for the communism whose failings one might be familiar with, but with an idealized communism of a past uh, and, a, and a desire to, to return to it. And then finally, I think what Russia offers the European public, the European youth, the unemployed youth, the radicalized youth, is the attraction of the strongman dictator. Uh, from the history of the 20th century dictatorships, from the history of the totalitarianisms of the 20th century, we know that a key component was the cult of the leader, the personality cult. And uh, Putin has done nothing if not build up a personality cult around himself, which is why he is in Russia so, so such a popular figure. So part of my thinking is about the United States and Europe, facing Russia. The other part of this that I want to talk to you about is the United States and Europe facing Iran. So another case. Uh, and of course we just went through the uh, Lausanne negotiations around the uh, Iranian uh, nuclear, nuclear program. Happy to get into some of the, the details about this. What was remarkable uh, in, this, um, in this episode was that there were points where it seems pretty clear that the French, with their foreign minister, Lawrence Fabius, were um, stiffening the American's backbone, believe it or not. That uh, the, uh, the Kerry delegation seems to have been prepared to make bigger concessions, uh, and the, the French were saying no. And how come? Well, the French have had a much longer history of uh, negotiating with the Iranians. Uh, at least in one account, the uh, French-Iranian um, negotiations go back to um, Go back to the, uh, the, the 2002 era when uh, Dominique Villepin, the French foreign minister, regarded negotiation with Iran by the France as the better alternative to the US war with Iraq. Yeah. Now, be that as it may, whether that's the history or not, the point is that the French have been talking with the Iranians for a long time and have therefore developed a considerable mistrust uh, of them. Therefore, um, uh, considerable hesitation as well toward a um, naive American stance uh, with regard to what the uh, Iranians were prepared to um, uh, prepare to to do, no matter what they say. Uh, they've had much tougher, uh, much tougher stance on the sanctions issue and on the inspections. And now, as the dust settles, sort of on this whole matter, these are of course the the two key issues what kind of sanctions regime would be in place, and what kind of inspections are going to be allowed. Now, add to this the fact that while the, the, um, the outcome of Lausanne, despite all the loose threads, um, was celebrated here in Washington and in the American press, or in big parts of the American press, as this historical achievement, the response across Europe has been much more muted. There's no, there's no, no victory laps yet, and certainly not in, in Paris. Uh, so let's just look at uh, how uh, some of these um, differences show up uh, in, uh, in language, in rhetoric, a historic understanding with Iran, a good deal. President Obama, same day, Foreign Minister Fabius 
Subjects remain that we aren't agreed on, notably on economic sanctions, and the Supreme Leader has made statements that show there is still a lot of work to be done, period. Even the article in Le Monde that published this ended in a, in a, in a, in a, in a laconic, muted note, as if um, there, were, there were a lot of things unsaid. And Supreme Leader Khamenei, what has been achieved so far does not guarantee a deal or even that negotiations will continue to the end. And in the meantime, Khamenei has become much more emphatic in criticizing um, the, the, the deal. Um, with regard to inspections, um, remember uh, the Reagan era, trust and verify. Um, how are we going to verify? Uh, in the State Department parameters statement that came out after the, um, after the conclusion of the Lausanne deals, uh, we just have um, uh, somewhat squishy terms like regular access, um, uh, suspicious sites, uh, and Iran agrees to implement the additional protocol of the IAEA, the, uh, the Atomic um, Energy uh, Treaty. The uh, additional protocol is the clause in the treaty that was added in order to beef up inspection uh, regimes. And the fact that they say implement is, is, uh, is noteworthy because what they don't say is ratify. Because we've, we've been down this route before where the Iranians have said they would implement it, but it is never ratified by the Iranian parliament. But that's what the State Department said. The joint statements by Iran and the uh, uh, European Union only talked about provisional application of the additional protocol. Provisional, I understand, to mean temporary. Um, uh, and in contrast to that, um, the Supreme Leader excludes any extraordinary supervision measures, and in particular, no access to military sites, um, which is where many suspect significant nuclear research is being carried out. And then coming to the end, um, the sanctions relief. Um, the, um, what's going to happen if, if uh, Iran reneges? Uh, for the US State Department, all hope is placed in the snapback provision. Uh, that is, we'll ratchet down the sanctions, but if they misbehave, then we'll put them right back in place exactly how that's going to happen. Um, it's above my pay grade. Uh, the um, uh, the uh, joint statement, um, uh, we, all we have is a promise that the European Union will terminate the implementation of sanctions and the US will cease the application contingent on verification. Verification, however, depends on the inspections. And if you can't do the inspections, how are you going to do the verification? And Khamenei's consistent position on this is sanctions must end on signing, end of the deal. So just uh, in summary, um, what I'm trying to think about these days is uh, how the transatlantic relationship, which I think is so sorely in need of rebuilding, uh, works in the face of these two challenges. Because Russia and Iran, different kinds of cases to be sure, um, have things in common. Uh, both are engaged in, I'd call it, sphere of influence competition. They're trying to expand their power beyond their borders. In the case of Russia to Central East Europe, in the case of Iran throughout the, the Middle East. Uh, both engage in strategic deception. 
the Russians, of course, invading Ukraine and saying, you know what, we're really not there, just kidding, but they were. Uh, whereas the Iranians developed their, um, their nuclear capacity illegally and covertly. And then thirdly, and as a scholar of the humanities, this interests me in particular, the battle of ideas. Because this is not just power politics, it's projection of alternative visions of how we should live. Uh, what's the role of authority versus what's the role of freedom? What's the role of um, dictatorship versus what's the role of liberty in, in human life? The Russian version and the Iranian version aren't the same, but they have enough in common uh, for, um, for us to uh, regard this as, a, um, as, 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 related, um, as related challenges. Um, why Russia has just, uh, at this delicate moment in the negotiations, decided to uh, make a major missiles uh, sale deal with Iran uh, is, um, is, uh, is, is something worth, worth considering. But it certainly initiated a whole new level in the arms race in the Middle East and the general sense of insecurity in the, in the area. That's my story. I'm happy to take questions. For more podcasts and chartcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, and Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.